The new series Outcast from The Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman stars some major talent. Prolific actor Reg E. Cathy from The Wire, Oz, an Emmy winner for his role on House of Cards, and Patrick Fugit from Almost Famous and Fincher's Gone Girl, here on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thanks for joining me. According to many of comic book creator and writer Robert Kirkman's loyal fan base, his new comic and show Outcast is the best thing he's ever written. And that's big, considering he's the creator of a zombie empire, The Walking Dead, that took comics and zombies on TV to a whole new level. Anticipation for Outcast is huge. Kirkman's new show, which premieres in the coming week, has already been renewed for season two, even before it's begun. Oscar winner Atticus Ross is the series composer, and the show features a stellar cast of award-winning talent. Compared to Kirkman's zombie world, Outcast is quiet and tense. This time around, he's tackling demon possession, exorcism, family and community in the face of evil, in a small southern U.S. town called Rome. Do you wonder if there are things we can't explain? There are things in this world that shouldn't exist. Things I don't even want to believe in. But I've seen them. I've been seeing them my entire life. Something's going on in this town. People are afraid. These things are everywhere. They're all around us. I can't run away from this. It's time I fought back. It's too late to fight. You ain't seen a fight yet. I'm honored to talk to two of the show's actors, Reg E. Cathy from David Fincher's Seven, TV shows such as The Wire and Oz, and a recent Emmy winner for his role on House of Cards. Coming up, Reg and I talk about his new role here as Police Chief Giles on Outcast, working with David Simon, and going to school with Madonna. But first I talk to actor Patrick Fugit. He was unforgettable in his first role when he was just 16 as director Cameron Crowe's alter ego in the now-classic film Almost Famous. There he played a young, aspiring journalist working on a Rolling Stone piece and traveling with the band. He acted opposite Kate Hudson, the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Frances McDormand in a now-iconic performance played his mother, concerned with her young son's rock-and-roll lifestyle. Fugit went on to work in a very different type of film, Spun, with Swedish director Jonas Åkerlund, and most recently he can be seen in David Fincher's Gone Girl. Now he takes on his first TV role as Kyle Barnes on the show based on the comic Outcast. He's a young man who's been plagued by demons since he was a child. As an adult, and with the help of a local reverend, he tries to uncover what lies behind the horror to rebuild himself and his family. Patrick Fugit, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Now, were you a comic book reader as a kid? No, I mean, I liked, um, I really liked Spider-Man when I was growing up, uh, the, the cartoon mm-hmm. and the imagery of Spider-Man. So I would buy Spider-Man comics just to look at the pictures. Um, but recently I've gotten into comics. Uh, I got into the Punisher and I really, really enjoy the Punisher. 
the thing about comics, I mean, if they're good, that they so often have a, a deeper meaning, a sort of commentary on society, Kirkman's own Walking Dead with, with fear and community. And I just did a show on Wonder Woman and feminism. And what about Outcast? What's the bigger picture for you in that one? Uh, I think it would be uh, demons, like personal, uh, personal demons or challenges. Um, What's Kyle's perspective? Kyle's perspective is uh, ultimately, I think, of like enlightenment. Like he sort of discovers that he's able to interact with this darkness that surrounds him in a way that may uh, lead to him being able to control what happens in his life, you know, control his destiny, that kind of thing. And uh, and um, I think with that, during the first season, he wants to get his family back. He wants to... Uh, um, he's not so concerned with clearing his name in the town, but clearing his name with his, his family and uh, being able to be a good father and a good husband. And there's also, of course, an element of faith in this when you're dealing with, with exorcism. Has, has uh, faith played a role in your life? No, I mean, um, my family is not uh, not particularly religious. Uh, we, um, we were brought up fairly spiritual, but... Uh, not, you know, that wasn't channeled through any specific faith per se. We were baptized Presbyterian, but we only went really on Christmas and Easter and when grandma was in town. And in what way would you say you were spiritual? Well, my mother is a ballet teacher. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up doing ballet and there, there was a, a commitment to discipline and personal mastery that I think is pretty universal within the, the world of ballet and people who practice it. Um, and that sort of discipline and mentality of, you know, um, uh, personal mastery is carried on throughout my life. And my, my, uh, my father, uh, was a, used to race motorcycles, uh, in the deserts of, uh, Utah and Arizona. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so one of our biggest things was going out into the desert, going out into the mountains. We would, uh, we would ride motorcycles and, um, and be in the desert and just the act of being out there in something ancient and something wild was, um, was a, a sort of tribute to our lineage and to, you know, the creation of it all. Your young co-star, Gabriel Bateman, I think he's, he was only 10 in the pilot, he gives one of the scariest and best demon-possessed performances this side of Linda Blair. That must have been incredibly creepy for a kid to play. How did he take that? He is a pro. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a natural performer. He, he's an actor, you know, like, uh, and, uh, and like, I don't, I don't, I don't take that um, title lightly at all. Mm -hmm. um, there are many children who um, who attempt to act. There are many children who get jobs and that sort of thing. But there are very few that are around his age that are actually actors that have the care for the skill sets. They have the the motivation to develop those skill sets. And they have the ability to execute them. You know, they have the ability to perform. And he is one of one of the rare ones that I've that I've ever met. He was so into it. It was it was just him. It was him embracing the role, just like you do when you're 
10 years old and you, and you love, you know, you love acting, you love scenes, you love characters, um, and, uh, and moments and, and creating those sort of, uh, emotional tensions, whether it's a uh, humor or fear or uh, drama or whatever it is, he really enjoys those things. And so that's, uh, that's, it's an incredible thing to be around because, you know, sometimes even adult actors don't have that kind of a perspective. Right, right. Because you started really early um, um, in Almost Famous, but you got to make out with Kate Hudson, which potentially was equally intimidating <laughs> for a young kid, was it? <laughs> well, she was, you know, she was acting like she was passed out on Quaaludes. So I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call it making out with Kate Hudson, but. <laughs> <laughs> but um, could you sort of talk to Gabriel about performing as a kid from your own experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are things that um, that Francis McDormand, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Billy Crudup, you know, all those really great experienced actors passed on to me while we were filming Almost Famous, things that I didn't know at all. For example? Oh, man. Um, Francis McDormand had a great way of... Uh, challenging what I thought a scene was about. So Francis McDormand, I would go in prepared with my sort of spiel, you know, I would go in there um, prepared with whatever we had come up with in rehearsals with uh, um, the acting coach that we had on the film, Belita, Mm -hmm. who was genius. And um, we would get into the actual filming of the scene and Francis would start to change everything in the scene in terms of tone timing, uh, intention, that sort of thing. And it was, it it challenged me in a way that really brought out a lot of natural uh, performance in, in my, my end of the scene, you know, which is great. Um, That was a a technique that I'd learned in theater school, but I'd, you know, it never would have occurred to me to, to use it in such a high stakes setting, you know, where I playing the lead in a Cameron Crowe film. Um, and there's, you know, all this production that goes into, you know, capturing this performance on film is a big deal. It's a lot of pressure, uh, for a 16 year old kid. And, um, Francis was able to show me how, how to loosen it up and how to challenge what the scene was about, how to challenge myself and Cameron even, um, which is incredible. But, and, and, uh, also in terms of, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, when we did our scenes together, you know, Philip, Philip was a trained um, theater actor and a, a brilliant one. And I was a kid from Salt Lake City, Utah. You know, I'd done whatever local theater training I had there, but it was nothing compared to, you know, the, the, the repetitions, you know, the things that he'd seen and the things that he'd done. And so he, uh, he had a kind of attitude of like, yeah, this is great. This is really cool that you're doing this, but you've also got to show up. And you've also got to earn it. Right, the discipline part that you were talking about from your own. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. How old are you? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with a rock star. They're going to fly you places for free. Oh! You're going to meet girls. 
Oh, God, it's gonna get ugly. I am telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know what's going on. Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you want to go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! Um, I have to just say, on a personal note, the movie is 16 years old now, I think. And and when I saw it the first time, as a sort of younger journalist, um, I was into all the romanticism of journalism. Now I was, um, I watch it now and then, but I watched a few scenes now getting prepared for talking to you. And I realized that I'm now Frances McDormand because I have a 12-year-old kid. (laughs) 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 Um, And because I didn't get her. Well, I got her. I thought she was magnificent. But you know what I mean. It's like now it's like I'm going to be exactly the same in three years (laughs) yeah exactly i am now two years older than billy crudup was when we shot the film wow (laughs) isn't that bananas yeah can you relate to him or francis mcdormand's character (laughs) (laughs) out of everybody who would i relate to in in that film i think it would still be william miller I have a couple more things, but I want to ask you, because um, I'm based in Sweden, that you worked with one of our big Swedish directors, Jonas Åkerlund, on Spun. Yes. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience with him? Um, so the first time I worked with Jonas was on Spun. And uh, at that time, he was a music video director. He had done uh, Madonna's videos. He had done, um, what's the, uh, it's, it's called Smack My Bitch Up but I forget who. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, at that point, that was still, that was like 2001, 2002. That was still when, uh, when indie films were, you know, being experimented with in terms of templates and their accessibility and, uh, and their popularity and that sort of thing. And um, that was a, that was an incredible shoot. I mean, it was like guerrilla filmmaking. Because I imagine that he's quite different from Cameron Crowe, which was not, long after (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah totally he um but that was kind of part of it i mean the character was totally different the the style and the tone of the film was totally different the subject matter was grotesque and amazing and um and jonas himself was a much different vibe from cameron um and i i love uh that that time shooting that film because jonas was so great and uh had such a cool vision and the way that he filmed everything was very unique i mean we would set up lights uh his uh his dp eric who's also swedish um would uh would set up a, a scene in terms of the lighting and then we would just go through the scene and there was a lot of improvisation and uh ad-libbing and there wasn't really blocking um, it was very loose, and I, you know, I came, I came from uh, shooting with Cameron Crowe and John Toll. John Toll was our uh, director of photography, so um, that was a very structured, very, very specific and elegant way to shoot a film. And Jonas was just sort of like we, we were just like having a, a crazy <laughs> party or something like that. Um, but there, you know, there's obviously a method to his madness, and. Uh, um, I, I loved it. A lot of the crew was Swedish and I had a great time hanging out with those guys and watching them work and then seeing how the film came together afterwards. 
talking about music, there's an amazing, you guys are working with Atticus Ross on Outcast and The Cure. I love that the fact that they were on the end titles. Tell me a little bit about the thinking with the music. Well, I mean, you know, the music was something that that came in after filming had begun. Atticus came on board uh, and we were all very excited about it, uh, but we were also already filming. And, um, and so it was sort of a, it was sort of an anticipation, a surprise, what, what his sound was going to be because, you know, we had no idea. Um, and so I think I remember, uh, the first, first time I heard his score over an episode was the first episode when they, when they, you know, polished that up and finished it up. And it's, uh, it's awesome. It's this, it's this great, uh, this great vibe of like, uh, it's, it sounds sort of contemporary, but it also captures the vibe of a small town and the, uh, the sort of, um, jeopardy of what's going on. And then having the cure in there at the end, is so Adam Wingard, it's crazy. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'm pretty sure that was his like top choice. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think so. Well, it's absolutely perfect. It was like, well, at least for my generation. (laughs) Um, I'm about to interview Reg E. Kathy, and you guys have both worked with Fincher, for example, but different projects. Tell me a little bit about, before going into the interview, what it's like working with him and and some sort of secret I can bombard him with before I talk to him. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I think to me he's to me he's just an icon with the series that he has worked on from The Wire and and, and Oh yes. So what I, I like to think of um you know uh acting and and the tradition of you know exchanging energies with with actors through scenes and playing scenes and doing uh doing films and television together. I like to think of it as like a, a one large tribe, right? And Within the tribe, you know, you have campfires, and uh, uh, Reggie is is a big campfire. Like he's a man with a lot of experience. Um, he's seen and done so many different kinds of acting. Um, he really has an incredible well of stories to draw upon and listen to. And so, when we're on set or when we're out and about, I I, I like to try to sit as close to the campfire as I can <laughs> get as warmth as I can, uh, you know, to contribute to my own campfire. I love that analogy. <laughs> I understand he went to school with Madonna, so I have to get some stuff on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're there. I can hear you. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Patrick. I think I've taken more time than I was supposed to. And now I'm really looking forward to the next one. And thank you for the series. It's going to be great. Thank you. And now, Reg E. Cathy, the prolific actor with the incredible voice. At one point, he was considering a career as a jazz musician playing the saxophone, but acting got in the way. He's well known for his part as political operative Norman Wilson on David Simon's The Wire. He played Martin Kearns on Oz, Dr. Franklin Storm in The Fantastic Four. And last year, he received an Emmy for his role as Freddie Hayes, owner of Freddie's Barbecue Joint and confidant of Kevin Spacey on House of Cards. If these roles aren't cool enough, he just recently guest starred on Inside Amy Schumer and Louis C.K.'s Horace and Pete. The man can pick a role. Reg E. Kathy, nice to talk to you. Hello. 
Hello. Hello. How are I'm so you? honored to talk to you. And you heard me say what how you are just for me. You're just an icon of of TV, and you the performance. Oh my goodness! Thank you. You've done some of the most amazing performances and shows. That if I see a new show with your name, and it's like that one, that I'm watching that one. <laughs> thank you so much. Patrick said you were his campfire. What what is he for you? <laughs> oh, that's too funny. It's just because I talk a lot of, you know, trash. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're the warmth and stability. But what is he? What has it been for for you? Uh, well, this whole we, we bonded. Patrick, Philip, and I truly bonded. Our first, uh, our last uh, day of shooting when we did the pilot, and it was so cold, and uh, we shot all night. And Adam kept doing take after take after take and instead of getting angry or uh having like being petulant or or you know uh a diva about it everybody we just started laughing and the laughter just uh was infectious so the crew started laughing and so whenever someone would complain it was always with a joke and i knew that we were going to have something special. You were born in Alabama and Huntsville, but you were from a, a military family, and I understand that you moved around a lot and you grew up in West Germany, for example. I, I have experience of that, of moving around a bit. And one of the ways to sort of keep close to home was through pop culture and movies and comic books. Were, were comic books or movies in such a way for you? Yes, I collected comic books. You did? and uh, Yeah, for years. And my mom... Um, threw them out when I went to college and uh, I didn't say a word. I got uh, a book that, you know, would uh, uh, explain how much they're worth, you know, and I circled the ones I had and I gave it to my mom and she felt so bad for about a year. I could get away with anything because <laughs> she felt so bad because she threw away a bunch of money. <laughs> So you definitely have the most beautiful voice of everyone who's been on my show the past 45 shows or whatever it is. And I understand you also play um, the baritone sax. Was music something you were considering? Oh, yeah. As a kid, uh, when I lived there, we were in Germany. I truly thought I was going to play uh, jazz. I was going to live in Paris and play jazz you know, in Paris and in Hamburg, Germany. And then I would write novels like Chester Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> I play the sax like uh, Lester Young. And, and I was going to write novels like Chester Hyde. And then I saw a UFO show of Guys and Dolls. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that show, Adelaide came out in a towel to sing a place and can develop a cold and I said, this is what I got to do. I want to be in that. I want to do shows with naked girls. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I became an actor. Oh, very good. And, and, and have you been in shows with naked girls? Uh, no. <laughs> God said, sure, you can do this. There'll be no naked girl. Okay. Well, this, this may be a weird segue, but, but is it any truth that you went to school with Madonna? Yes. Yes, I did. And tell me and, about that. Uh, what, was, what was she like at that point? When she was, was this? She was a dance major, and she, even then she was a star. Uh, and she would like whenever. Was this in college? Come, Sorry. Yeah, this is at University of Michigan. And uh, whenever she would come to one of the parties, 
it would be like, you know, Madonna's here. Yeah. And then uh, she used to date David Allen Greer, who was funny. We were roommates. Oh, yeah? And Yeah. And uh, the first time I came to New York, we crashed on Joey Ramone's couch. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that trip I saw. We saw all the Broadway shows. We saw American Buffalo with uh, Robert Duvall. We saw The Wiz with Andre DeShield and Stephanie Mills, uh, Chorus Line. And it was truly, I was like, I thought, I can't wait to come to New York and become an actor and be a part of this scene. Um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, now that you are doing a sort of different genre that you are in, the, the horror genre, what, what is that like for you? You know, it's, uh, I approach the roles the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, it's the same, basically. The, the writing's really good. Uh, Chris Black and Howie Deutsch are, are amazing showrunners and producers who make sure we have everything we need to be successful. And uh, it's fabulous. What What's different is the whole, like uh, we were at Comic-Con in Naples and just the whole rabbit fan base. Right, the I've comic fans. Like yeah, mm. and Robert Kirkman fans. Oh right. my God. I've never seen anything like it. It's kind of mind-blowing. I was asking Patrick about what he felt was sort of uh, a good comic book often has a deeper meaning, a conversation about society today. What, what do you see in Outcast? Well, it's it's funny you ask because I wonder what the 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 devil represents. I, I wonder is he, is uh, Robert trying to tell a story with this small town with in America in a certain way. Uh, so that if the small town represents America, what does this possession represent? Does that represent a way that the the people in America are being um, uh, possessed by some type of outside, or is it an internal? And what does it really mean? And it's fascinating, you know. It is, and 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 in your career, you have played a bunch of sort of roles um, on the seen the worst side of corrupt politicians and power and abuse, and 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 here it's even demonic. Um, yes. Yeah. Do you have an idea for for yourself what true evil is? Oh, that's a that's a deep question. <laughs> is it too deep for early morning? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's fabulous. Uh, I I start when I was younger. Uh, I would ha- I would have had a different answer, but the older I get, I truly think the true evil is sorry about that is the human being is the capable of such terror and such horror. I think we, for instance, I think the devil, if there is one, hasn't had to do anything for about a thousand years <laughs> because humans, we've done enough. Yes, exactly. We have that capability of just torture you know if someone's different this is you know it's it's funny there's that line of shakespeare that uh or rather what um abraham lincoln said we have to really get in touch with our better angels and i think we've forgotten how to do that because we uh we'll just uh be terrible to each other and do the worst things and it's just awful but describe your character in, in Outcast, Chief Giles. Well, see, Chief Giles, I think, loves his community. He uh, he is uh, 
gotten himself so that he is a, a one of the pillars of the community, which has been difficult being uh, black in uh, a part of America that is traditionally uh, very, very racist. And But like America, we're dealing with it in the best way we can, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. We take one step forward and two steps back. But Chief Giles has the, uh, the faith and the hope that things will get better. And he's going to make sure he does his part. He's a fabulous. I, I truly love the characters that they're creating. And I can't wait to see what happens to him. Yes. This season. <laughs> and hope it goes well. <laughs> yeah. But if it goes badly, he'll, be, he'll deal with it. Right. That's true. That's true. Um, you're one of the actors that's worked on very many of David Simon's shows from The Corner to Homicide. And in your opinion, um, what does Simon's work mean mean to you and to sort of the audiences in the U.S.? Most well, it's funny. He, uh, he uh, has changed the way uh, people think about television in a very unique way. I mean, he's so smart and his shows are so smart and they say they go right to the heart of like what's troubling big city America. Uh, 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 But in more, in a smaller sense, that's in a big sense, in a smaller sense, he, all his shows are are really about the loss of family and the, uh, and how that affects the neighborhood, the city, the community, the state, the country, because it truly, it's that loss of family that, and then how you try to, when you've lost your family, how you try to make another family. And sometimes that what you create is terrible, like for the gang culture or the drug culture in the corner, the gang culture in the wire, the police culture. And, but it's all trying to get back to a sense of togetherness, uh, a sense of family, a sense of tribe, which is kind of tribal. I mean, we humans... We've come so far from the hunter-gatherer days, but really we're the same. We're the same frightened little creatures, you know, that that are huddled in a cave somewhere, afraid of the stranger, afraid of you, you know, what what tomorrow might bring. Instead of outcasts. Yes, exactly, outcasts. But Norman Wilson, in um, he was sort of a, a disillusioned character, and then you played. Uh, with politics, I mean, and then Freddie Hayes um, in House of Cards, with his who loses his his rib restaurant, and and has one of the most poignant scenes, I think, when he visits the White House with his grandson and basically tells him, "You can never be president." Right. Do you think sort of that's what's happening now? This disillusionment with politics in the roles you're playing. Yeah, now that you've mentioned it, it does. There, there is a kind of. I've been the last couple of roles I've done have had that disillusionment in that. Uh, but with still, uh, at least with uh, Freddie, what I really loved about Freddie was that as bad as it got, he had his dignity, he had his freedom. Right. And tomorrow was going to be better than yesterday. He, there's a certain kind of optimism that no matter what happens, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. And I, I really don't. To Survivor. Yes. Uh, what's the latest? Oh, you know, Frank saying old shit. Almost got killed last weekend. Here? No. State Fair down in Virginia. Me and my brother hauling the smoker down there. And this fucking minivan had a fridge strapped on top. A fridge. 
strapped on top of a mint fan, right? <laughs> Stupid. Well, that fridge slipped loose. Boom! Right in front of us. I had to swerve to the left, barely miss it. But now, that smoke is fishtailing, almost hit a hatchback in the next lane, swerved to the right, barely missed it too. <laughs> Jesus! Man, it was real. But you know, that's why God gave us reflexes. So we can move the fuck out of the way when a fridge come out of nowhere. You choose your roles in such amazing ways, um, um, sort of voices of generations with, with David Simon and, and with Fincher and stuff. And now you just did a couple guest appearances in my absolute favorites at the moment, Amy Schumer and in Horace and Pete with Louis C.K. Can you tell me a little bit about working with them and why you wanted to be on their shows? Well, uh, Louis C.K. and I go back to, to a, a movie with Chris Rock called Pootie Tang. Mm. <laughs> and Pootie Tang, up until Freddy, was what I was recognized most of. From. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and to this day, I get like everyone from black kids to stoner kids to now that it's such an old movie, uh, you know, like 30 somethings will stop me on the street. Dirty D! Oh, Dirty D! You're my man! <laughs> Taking selfies. So that was, I wanted to work with Louie again. And that Horace and Pete, I don't know if you've seen it. I have. It's, it's my favorite. It's spectacular, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's just, oh my goodness. And, I, and in that, like Edie Falco and I go back to Oz. Steve Buscemi and I worked together years ago in a movie called Airheads. And uh, Oz, too. And we've known each other in New York. So it was like, that was like old home week. The Amy Schumer... Uh, I did a, a, a show called Neon Joe Werewolf Hunter. Oh, wow. I haven't <laughs> heard of that one. <laughs> and that had some of Amy Schumer's writers on it. So mm-hmm. when she called, I was like, yeah. And she's awesome. Yeah, very You know, so. But those other parts before, up until recently, I had to audition. There was no real choosing. Right. People chose me. So, you know, I would just audition and whoever hired me. I would do the gig. And you don't audition anymore? Well, yeah, I still audition. But, for instance, Robert called me to do this. And so I didn't have to audition for this or Outcast, which was, like, just uh, amazing. There's this wonderful show I did called The Divide, which was canceled. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, but canceled. Where Tony Goldwyn just called me and said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this show. And I was like, yeah, great, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) but so and it's funny when when people ask me about the roles i choose it's funny i i've never really uh, my choosing you know i choose to audition (laughs) (laughs) and did i get the gig or not have people asked you to do roles for for your voice specifically uh few a very few mostly uh because now that uh i'm more I don't know why. I, you know, I can't even tell you why people started now just offering me jobs. Well, you're, I mean, they, they was late because you've been amazing for so long, but you're also ah, an Emmy winner you. now. I mean, just thank last you. year you won an Emmy, and of course yes. that wakes people up, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> that was, that was mind-blowing because the year before, Kate Mara and I were sitting together, and we both lost, and we had a ball. We laughed. Uh, 
her mom came with us, so we all went out to dinner. Kate Mara was also in House of Cards. Right. Right. And uh, we did uh, Fantastic. He played my daughter in Fantastic Four. Right. And so I really wasn't expecting to win the second year, last year. I was just going to have a, you know, to have a great time. And this is going to be great, too. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to seeing more of it than I've gotten the privilege to see it. And good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to actors Reg E. Cathy and Patrick Fugit. Robert Kirkman's Outcast premieres in the U.S. on Cinemax on June 3rd. And here in Sweden, you can see it on Fox on Monday, June 6th. Keep a light on because it's super scary. Let me know what you think of the show and of this show on our Twitter at PodPopCulture and visit the homepage popcultureconfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Callboy, produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 